Special Sunday School, I'm going to share material that's very important for defining the church. How do we know what the church is, how Christ intended the church to be? And we're going to deal with baptism because baptism is the one area in church history that's probably caused more confusion and really significantly changed the definition of the church. And so this morning we'll talk about also the difference between the church as defined biblically and the institutional church that most people think is what the church is. And so we're going to try to answer the question, are households baptized to be baptized and are uh, descendants of Christians therefore Christians, and does the church perpetuate itself through institutions that are self-perpetuating through infant baptism, catechism, and the incorporation of the descendants of Christians into the institutional church? Is that the church? Or is the church a living organism that's birthed through the gospel and the members are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ the cornerstone, and each member is attached to the head, Jesus Christ, and therefore the church is a living organism, not a human institution that's self-perpetuating. That's what we're going to try to answer. And so we're not going to have question and answers this time because I want this to be... Uh, a lecture that just goes right forward, okay? Let's start with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness that you've shown to us in Christ. And may we understand what you've said to us in your word, and may we learn and grow and understand from Acts more about your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to deal with Lydia, and the reason this is important in regard to the definition of the church is that Lydia's household being baptized is the one proof text that the institutional church uses to um, validate their practice of infant baptism. So let's go forward and we'll do a little review here of Lydia, Acts 16, 13, and 14. Remember, Paul had traveled to ultimately to Philippi. We covered that travel last week. And it says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where there were, we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And when we sat down and began speaking to the woman, women, excuse me, who had assembled, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And so I covered that last week, and we talked about God opening hearts, and we, we, we saw the, the work of God in conversion, and also how the historical accuracy of the Bible is confirmed by some of the things that happened here. The places traveled, the purple fabric, the reality of Thyatira being a place where that happened, where they got the die and so forth. We covered that last week. So I want to move forward here. But I promised you I'd get you some slides. And so here we have slides about um, the bigger picture. We wanted to put this in a historical perspective. So I, I got a bigger picture slide. And here we see um, the Greek uh, peninsula called Macedonia and Achaia, and we see it travel from uh, Thessalonica on down the coast to Athens. These are places Paul went, and to the west of there is the boot, as we call it, of Italy. So I promised last week I'd give you a wider angle perspective. So there you can see that. Now, this is even wider, so much so you probably can't see it very well. That's not bad. And so you see uh, Europe, Italy, Greece, 
Turkey, um, the Mediterranean Basin, I Israel, and so on, would be covered here. So this is where Paul is operating and where he went. I got these, by the way, out of my uh, logo software. And here's a, one more perspective of this travel. And it shows Jerusalem down at the bottom right. And Paul's second missionary journey is, is, is called as he goes to these various places where he ends up. So there are the maps that I promised to bring you last week. So there you go. Now let's go to verse 15. This is what we're going to focus on. We have printed out notes, and on the back, there's a whole bunch of verses about baptism. And we really have to focus on this because I am going to disagree with almost the entire church throughout church history. Now, I'm not the only one who's ever done this, but it's really never taken hold of you that the church is not to be a self-perpetuating human inst institution, but a living organism that's always attached to the head, Jesus Christ, and it grows in different ways than institutions grow, and it perpetuates in different ways than institutions perpetuate. But one of the ways that institutions perpetuate the institutional church, and this includes Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, Reformed, Lutheran, Varied Methodist, Anglican, just about anything you want to think of, evangelicalism, even from the 19th century onward, self-perpetuating. And people want to know why apostasy happens. Well, because they're assuming that the institutional church is the church. And when an institution goes apostate, the church is apostate. But I would say the institution was never the church to start with. All right. And that's why when I get emails from CIC readers, they say, well, why don't you write about how the Southern Baptist Convention is putting bad in bad leadership? I said, because I could care less about the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not the church. And I wouldn't waste somebody's talent trying to run it. Whoever is in charge of that and has all kinds of degrees and huge salary or whatever, I'm not picking just on Southern Baptist, would be better spent actually taking care of the church, actually teaching the church, not trying to run some massive institution that if it is an apostate in our generation, it will be in the next, if you want to call it that. So let's look at this. Acts 16, 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So she becomes a key person in the establishment of the church in Philippi. And God used her. And we talked about that last week. Now, what we want to focus on is this phrase, she and her household. This is the proof text for infant baptism. And those who teach infant baptism assume, without any explicit statement of this, that our household contained really small children. And they bat whether infants or two-year-olds or three-year-olds, whoever they may have been, they were all baptized no matter who they were. And from that comes the entire practice of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of churches throughout history that they're going to incorporate the children of believers into the church through some version of baptism. And uh, generally, they, they do infants. And then there are ceremonies connected with this. Uh, parents take oaths and vows that they're going to do certain things and so forth. And 
this is what happens. But this is not what is being taught here. So my statement, as you see on the slide, is the implication is that they too heard the gospel and believed. And I'm going to show you that. Hopefully we can do this in a forthright manner so I can get through this material. But we're going to walk through the book of Acts because remember, the author determines the meaning, not the reader. Okay? Luke wrote Luke X. Luke is telling us about baptism under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if we can determine when Luke wrote about baptism in Acts, what did he write about and what was the issue and who was baptized and why were they baptized, we can come to understand Luke's view and therefore the Holy Spirit's view and therefore the biblical view of baptism. So I'm saying the implication is they heard the gospel and believed. Elsewhere in Acts, it is believers who are baptized. And this is what we need to know. They that she had believed, and the implication is so did her household. Let's, let me quote Romans 10, 14 through 16. I need to move something here so I can see it on my screen. It says, Romans 10, 14 through 17, excuse me. How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes by hearing, verse 17, and hearing by the word of Christ. Here's objective genitive, the word about Christ. Certainly it came from Christ, but we're preaching Christ. I tell preachers when they contact me, preach Christ. Don't worry about what program you have. There's different programs. We want to be organized and efficient. But what you've got to do is preach Christ. And what happens with the institutional church is the program becomes everything, and the program is how the church perpetuates itself and carries on over decades and then even centuries and so on because the preachers think that their number one job is to create a very efficient and powerful institution that will self-perpetuate. And that that is what God wants. That's the Great Commission and so on. And they're going to put in place statements, creeds, catechism, however they do it, to ensure that this perpetuation of the institution shall always have the same beliefs. And they force people to take oaths to be deacons or serve in the church, thinking if you took an oath that you believed in our confession, then obviously you believe it. But that is not true. It has not happened that way. And it has failed again and again and again. And I've debated with some people who are creedless. Driving from here was last winter, I think. I drove by a Presbyterian church, and they can't be Presbyterian if they didn't swear to the Westminster Confession. And in front of the church is a sign saying, we are the world. Okay, So the creed didn't save them from becoming the world. They don't even realize the world is antithetical to God and the church. I drive by the other way to go home, and I drive by a Methodist church with their ideas, and here's a rainbow flag. We're woke. Okay, So you see this everywhere. And so I'm telling you that all of this process doesn't create what the original people who set it up thought they were going to get. 
that's the issue. So I'm suggesting that as long as we're alive, we preach Christ and we disciple converts, baptize believers, provide the means of grace, and trust God for what happens in the future. Just leave it in God's hands. Because see, Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Rome says, well, the rock is Peter, and Peter's the first pope, and so we're building a church. And what they're building is an abominable pagan um, religion that doesn't even resemble the Christianity we see in the book of Acts. Now, this slide's going to be here for a while, but I have here, if you turn over to back of your notes, it would be too small if we had this on a slide for anybody else that would see this, but you can look these up in your Bible if you're listening to this uh, later when it's recorded. And let's go through and see what Luke says in Acts. He's the author of Acts about baptism. What does Acts say about baptism, particularly baptism in water? Acts 1.5 is the first verse. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So John's baptism in water is looking forward to being baptized in the Spirit, which would be what happened on the day of Pentecost, which happened for believers. We'll see that in a bit. So um, there's going to be a baptism in the Holy Spirit. So I, I have here on this sheet every instance that the term baptize is used in Acts. I found that by searching the Greek New Testament. So this is a comprehensive list. So the one about baptism and the spirit that happens on Pentecost is here because it's in Acts. Number two, Acts 2.38. Now what about water after Pentecost? John had water. What about now for the Christian church? Acts 2.38. Peter said to them, now these are the ones who received the spirit, repent and each of you, now who is each of you? Those who repent, right? Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38. Verse 41 of Acts 2. So then those who had received the word were baptized. You could say accepted the word. They brought, they, they took that to heart, right? They, built, they received the word. And that day there were added 3,000 souls. Okay, so 3,000 souls are added to what? The church, right? To the congregation, the new congregation that was birthed on the day of Pentecost, the church. So what do we know about those added? They received the word. They were commanded to repent. They received the spirit. And then they were commanded to be baptized in water. So the order isn't as important as the reality. We'll see when it comes to the order of events, Acts tells it a few different ways, but all these things happen at, at the conversion of people. All right? So get that right. So who here was baptized? Believers. You got it. Now let's go to the next usage of baptism in the book of Acts. Acts 8 and verse 12. Acts 8 and verse 12. It's on your handout. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Now this concerned preaching in Samaria. Now remember the Great Commission had to do 
but that you should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so here, Philip preaching brings about, by God's grace, conversions of men and women. They were baptized. Who was baptized? Believers. Believers. You got it. Acts 8, 16. Oh, yes. Now we got to remember the, in this Acts 8, the, the apostles come down from Jerusalem. And we covered that when I was preaching through Acts a long time ago, that this validated that God did indeed save Samaritans. Because that's not something they'd be thinking of. Because the Jews weren't that fond of Samaritans. And so the manifestation of the Spirit that preceded baptism earlier in Acts follows it here. So we know that the order of events isn't the key issue, but the fact of belief and conversion. So then Acts 8.16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But they had believed they were baptized. Then the evident manifestation of the falling of the Holy Spirit upon them happened. But the apostles present. To validate to the apostles, God saved Samaritans. Because they weren't want to, want to believe that other than seeing God do it. Now, let me give a quick <clears throat> aside here. There's also this narrative that goes on. Remember with Simon the sorcerer. Isn't that Acts 8? Am I right about that? I think I am. And he had supposedly believed and been baptized. But when he saw the Holy Spirit fall on people, he said, well, let me pay you to have the power to do this. If I lay hands on people, this will happen. And what did Peter say to him? May your money perish with you. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. So here's a man, Simon the Sorcerer, who apparently believed and definitely was baptized, but it turns out he wasn't really saved because Peter said he wasn't. Peter saw that and said, you're not saved. So now we know that it's possible that people will externally give assent to the facts, like Simon the Sorcerer, and say, yes, I want to be baptized, but then later turn out to not really be one of us. They went out from us because they were not really of us. Hold that one in your mind because that will help us understand the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. So we're not claiming that if we hold only to believer's baptism, it doesn't, that it guarantees never ever will anybody be baptized who's not really born of God. Because we can't know that exactly. It became obvious to Peter when Simon responded the way he did. So let's learn that. Let's go forward. Let's go to the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, 36 to 38. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Did Philip think belief was optional? No. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They went, both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. We believe in baptism by immersion because we want to bury the old man. 1 Corinthians 10. Remember? 
they went down. When they came out of Egypt, they went down. They came out. The water closed in behind them, signifying, I'm not going back. Egyptian army drowned in that water. I'm not going back. Okay? So there is, again, believer's baptism. Now let's go to Acts 9, where Ananias is called to come to Saul of Tarsus, who had been blinded in his confrontation with Jesus Christ, who he had been persecuting. All right? So Acts 9, 17 and 18. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, said, Brother Saul. So he believed that Saul was already converted. Because he called him Brother Saul. Even though he had heard that this guy kills Christians. He, he said, I don't know, why would I want to go help him? He wants us dead. Well, the Lord corrected him. So now he says, Brother Saul, right? You're one of us, praise God. Okay, so he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me, Ananias says, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. Again, don't get hung up on the order of events. The filling with the Spirit at, at Pentecost, then preaching, then baptism, and so on, and then added sometimes conversion, and then filling with the Spirit. And so that's not the issue. The issue that we're addressing is that baptism is for believers and that the way to be added to the church is only by faith in Jesus Christ. And you can't make somebody a Christian by taking them down to the water. In church history, they used to take people at the point of the sword, literally. And they told people, well, you have a choice. They're very open-minded. <laughs> You're going to be baptized and you get to choose whether it's in your own blood or in water. So those people that had the sword to their neck said, oh, I guess I'll take the water. Did that convert them? No. Okay. And it says, immediately it fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. So who was baptized? The Apostle Paul. Was he a believer? Yes. Let's go to Acts 10, 45 through 48. Now the gospel is going to Gentiles. All of this we're doing to determine whether Lydia's household was including the unregenerate. That's what we're trying to understand. Why go all through, through all that for one verse? Because we're trying to go against all of church history, that's why. And this is their one verse. So I'm trying to put it in context. Acts 10, 45-48. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. So this case... That's, when the, that's what convinced them that God accepted them. Peter had preached Christ. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. So it's like another Pentecost, only this time with Gentiles. And Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? Because remember, he knows He's going to have pushback for baptizing Gentiles. And he had to eventually go to convince the apostles of Jerusalem that it was the right thing to do. All right, we, we covered that. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. Who was baptized? Believers. Believers. Are we finding a pattern here? Let's go on. This is an exhaustive list from Acts. 
Acts 11.16, when he's uh, explaining why he baptized Gentiles. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That was Peter explaining it. Same incident. So as believers. Acts 16.15, this is our verse. And it's up here on the slide, she and her household. So we'll just leave that one sit there. That's the one that we're trying to answer the question. Who was it? What well, does it say right here other than Lydia and her household? We know Lydia's a believer. We don't know about who was in the household. There's no comment on that. Let's go to Acts 16, 32 through 34. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them at that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And they brought him into his house, set food before him and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is a Philippian jailer. So who was baptized? Believers. Because there's a note by Luke that he had believed with his whole household. Faith is something a person has in Jesus Christ. Faith is not reckoned to your account because of familial relations. I'm a cousin of a believer, therefore I must be a believer. I'm a great grandson of a believer, so therefore his faith must be my faith. No, each person must believe in God. How will they believe in him who they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And so those who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. So we know here that the household of the Philippian jailer believed. Acts 18.8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with, his, with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So again, belief and baptism. Believers are baptized. Acts 19, 3 through 5. This is when Paul found some followers of John the Baptist who needed to learn more about the Lord Jesus. Acts 19, 3 through 5. And he said, into what then were you baptized? He asked if they'd received the Spirit. He said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance telling people to believe in him who's coming after him, that is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But these people believed Paul and his preaching. And they wanted to learn the way of the Lord more perfectly, as we see in another instance. Now one more, Acts twenty-two sixteen. Now Paul is recounting his own baptism. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, notice the terminology. There are other things that come up, false doctrines, institutions like the Church of God that says baptism saves you. They find their proof text in here. But the fact is that we know elsewhere that Ananias already called Paul Brother Saul. And he had already been received by the Lord. And so here it says, wash away your sins, not meaning you still have them until you get in the water. But symbolically showing that it's all gone. It's all in the past. So you can say, I went down in the water and washed away my sins. But you know, the reality is that only Jesus washes the way he sins and he does it from the inside out. It's vivid terminology to help us see how important this is. So don't let anybody get you in these ditches. 
Oh no, it has to be this way and this way and this order and that order and so on. What we see is uniformly, other than maybe this verse, and I'm going to make a conclusion here, uniformly, baptism is for believers. And believers are those who trusted in Jesus and have know, know him. And this happens at the beginning of the Christian life. So, given all of these instances in Acts, and Luke is the Holy Spirit-inspired author of Acts, I conclude that any reasonable reading of Acts would say Lydia and her household were believers. That's the only, you have no reason to think any other thing. In fact, why didn't Luke say so? Because he assumed his readers would have known that. Anybody reading Acts would know that. It didn't have to be repeated every time, but it was every time elsewhere. And the implication is they too heard the gospel and believed. So there's no, um, isn't it ironic here that all of the instances you have believers and the institutional church wants to say that these were infants and then not just be satisfied saying that, then they want to say in some cases that this saves them, that being baptized as an infant saves you. Lutherans teach that. And then they suggest that being baptized as an infant puts you into the church and so on and so forth. And that's how the church perpetuates itself through the descendants of believers from generation after generation after generation. And if you eventually end up with a church that bears no resemblance whatsoever to what's described in the Bible, they say, don't worry, we can't be wrong. Rome said that to Luther when he challenged them, even though his doctrine of baptism was no, hardly better than theirs. It wasn't in some ways, but he, he, he got it wrong too. But here's what Rome said to Luther. We are ancient, we are many, therefore we are right. We are ancient, we are many, therefore we are right. And there are people who have witnessed to their Catholic relatives and their Catholic relative, I've heard this story more than once, takes a trip to Rome and goes into the Vatican and sees all the idolatry, but they consider it a glorious tribute to God. We'd call it idolatry. And then they hear the stories of how this was done and this was done and all these things. Look at this, look at this. Can this not be from God? And they come back and say, see, we saw it. No, that is of serious logical fallacy. It's like saying what is is right just because it is. That the Vatican exists is true. Does that imply that everything that went into that was somehow right and Christian and how God intended the church to be? No. no. That is foolish and it's a rejection of the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Now, okay, I may have to, is that working? Yeah, it's there, it took me too, I sat too long on one slide. I created this, this is as close as I've been to art coming from my hands in a long time. <laughs> An artist I am not. But this, I think, worked out pretty good. So predicated on what I've just showed you from the book of Acts and concluding that Lydia's household did not include baptized infants because it said no such thing, and that doesn't keep, that's not in keeping with the rest of Acts, I made this slide to illustrate why I believe that the church has been falsely defined for 2,000 years. 
going all the way back to the very earliest days. Baptismal regeneration was taught really early, really early. It was one of the first doctrines of some of the church fathers. A heightened view of baptism was there right away. I studied that under Dr. Travis at Bethel Seminary. He was a great teacher, by the way, and an older man. And I loved him, and I took every one of his classes I could get. Even though my major was in theology, I wanted to learn church history. And what I learned from church history is that church history is not a reliable source of doctrine. They went astray immediately. Immediately. And they believed that baptism saved. And they started having a heightened view of baptism. And it's only gotten worse through church history. So therefore, I made this slide to present before you two different views of the church and how that relates to baptism. I'm affirming that the book of Acts teaches the baptism of believers. And that this baptism of believers was ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ, taught and practiced by his apostles, and is to be held to by those who would be faithful to Christ and the gospel. And that believers are those who are to be baptized. So we have baptism and then arrows going off in two directions. One is household. One way you say the children of believers are to be baptized, whether at infancy or later, just based on the fact that children are believers. And I can talk about that a little bit. And that therefore we have household salvation. Some go that far. And then if that's the case, the church consists of the descendants of believers. Now, to be fair, those who believe that would welcome anybody who wasn't from a Christian family to come and join their church. But the vast majority of the people in the institutional church are the descendants of believers. Because that's just the way it's always been. And they've, they've got a running start. And then the church that for <clears throat> becomes an institution that is presided over by the descendants of believers. <clears throat> the reason you got a rainbow flag over here from the Methodist Church isn't because John Wesley believed in LBGQ, no, TQ. No, John Wesley didn't teach that. And the reason we have we are the world in front of Presbyterian Church is not because John Calvin taught that the church is the world. Although Calvin certainly was one of the big problems when it comes to promoting the institutional church because he tried to Christianize entire nations or his descendants did, and they had wars to determine whether a nation would be a Catholic nation or a Calvinist nation or a Lutheran nation. And so thus, from the institutional church, we end up with Christendom. Christendom is a cultural phenomena of nations characterized by churches the Anglican church was like this when I visited Barbados at the request of some godly believers there who wanted me to come and warn against the purpose-driven movement uh, that I wrote about in my first book. When I got to Barbados, one of the things, one of the believers there had his own tour company and he took Diane and I around, showed us the island. But when England conquered Barbados, in the colonial period, they, they told everybody on Barbados 
you are now Christians. And everybody's going to church. And they built a church, the Anglicans did, in, in each parish. A parish, by the way, is a geographical territory. All right? And so they divided Barbados, and the original churches are still standing there. Here's this territory. Here's this parish, this parish, this parish, this parish, this parish, covered the entire island. And if you live here, that's your church. If you live here, that's your church. If you live here, that's your church. And they made everybody Anglican and gave everybody a parish. And that's the history of Barbados. And that's how they created Christianity in Barbados was by conquering them and forcing them into the Anglican church, whether they wanted to or not. And so those original churches are still standing there. And so when you hear the term parish, that goes back to the institutional church forcing people to be Christians at the edge of the sword. You will be baptized either in water or your own blood. You choose. Well, I kind of like water. <laughs> and then that's it. And then you're, you're forcibly catechized and swore to forced to swear to certain things. And then the descendants of believers are baptized and it becomes self-perpetuating. And that's Christendom. Spread much the same way as Islam went and spread Islam at the edge of the sword. That's one way of looking at it. The church is an institution that perpetuates itself to the means that any institution would. The other way of looking at it is on the left side of my slide and taking a different view that baptism is for believers and that entering the church is done only in one way and that's through being born of God. Amen. Being born of God. Let me make a statement in this way. <clears throat> The real church, the body of Christ, the organic unity church of which Christ is the head and all our members who are part of it and they're built on the foundation of Christ the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets as the foundation and they're built up as living stones. Okay, it's an analogy, but it's about living stones that are attached to one another and to the head. That church exists through supernatural regeneration. The living organism church exists through supernatural regeneration. The institutional church exists through natural generation. You're born. That's all you got to do. You got to be born. Now, they're not saying that's all. They've got a program. So here's the program. You baptize the infants. You make sure they stay in the church as they grow up, which is easy to do usually till they're 12 or 13 or whenever they get their own ideas. And you catechize the daylights out of them. Catechize, 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 catechize. And so they just get it drilled in. And each institutional church creates their own catechism and then after the catechizing process social pressure and or entertainment either social enticement or social pressure becomes the means of keeping them there and there's various degrees of how strong that is in some cases The social shaming is palpable. If you stray one bit, you are going to be hated by your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, everybody else in the church. You are Judas, you are evil. You get here, you stay here, you show up, and you do your duty. 
And there are movies about this. There's movies about organized crime figures who murder everybody, but they don't miss church. Because <laughs> they don't dare. They're more afraid of the priests than they are the mob boss out here. <laughs> so obviously nothing changed in their moral condition. And so this is how people do things. Now, some are trying to be more biblical and look for signs of regeneration. Some that I've known have what they call a halfway covenant. In other words, we know that not all of our children are born of God, but they're going to be part of the church, and we'll consider them under a halfway covenant until we see signs of regeneration. I was talking to my daughter Jessica about this, um, and um, before, before, so I wanted to go over what I was going to share here. And I said to her, halfway to the new covenant is 100% of the way to hell. <laughs> what good is that? We've got to accept and embrace and cherish and nourish everyone whom the Lord saves. We've got to show common grace and kindness to those are not regenerate, but whether they come to the Lord or not is between them and God. I'm in favor of teaching biblical worldview to children. I do it. And I think as far as common grace is concerned, people are better off with a biblical worldview than with a neo-pagan worldview. We're seeing that in America right now because neo-paganism has taken over the entire West Coast. They're trusting nature to take care of them, and right now nature is burning them down. But that being said, that's common grace. That isn't the church. Common grace meaning God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But the fact is the church is not an institution that perpetuates itself through means and mechanisms invented by the church in church history, the church is a living organism attached to Jesus Christ the head, filled with the Holy Spirit, full of the joy of the Lord, part of the bride of Christ, looking forward to meeting him in the air and constantly speaking the words of God to one another because we love to do so. Amen. We're alive and not dead. And we did not get here because somebody baptized us against our will. We got here because God graciously saved us. And they might say, well, Bob, how is it going to perpetuate? By the promise of God in the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. We don't have to have a building. If we do, fine. If we don't, fine. We don't have to create something. We need to be organized enough to be legal and viable, but it, we don't have to create something that's going to go on into perpetuity. If God raises up leaders within a church, which he will, and there's a vital relationship with Christ, and the word of God is purely taught, a given group could go on for some generations, alive and excited about Christ. They may be small, they may be big, and if our children know Christ, you won't be able to keep them out of church as they grow up. And if they grow up and they don't really know Christ, that's between them and God. And I would say, live a decent life, be a good citizen, and God's still calling you to repent and believe the gospel. But I don't take adult children and say, you get here and you act like a Christian. I don't do that. And when they're converted, our daughter had went through a lot, but now that she's converted, try to keep her away. She couldn't get in here today, so she asked I put it on Zoom so they could get it, because she's so hungry. But that's one case. Sometimes kids aren't serving the Lord. That's between them and God. So do you see the distinction? Now, I have a statement at the bottom of the slide. The distinction between a visible and invisible church holds in both cases. We saw that with Simon the Sorcerer. 
For a few days, he was in the visible church until the apostles got there, and then it became clear he had no partner lot in this matter, and he took off. Your money can go perish with you. Notice he said, second person, you pray for me, that doesn't happen. He didn't want to pray. He didn't want to repent. But he asked Peter to pray that nothing bad would happen to him as he goes off in his apostasy. Okay? That was Simon the Sorcerer. So there's still a visible and invisible church. So you can have the pure teaching of the word of God and baptism of believers and things the way they should be. And there still may be people, we can't see the heart, there may be people that don't even know they're not Christian, they're just there and a part of it. We've had people, I've been in the ministry for well over 40 years, and time and time again I see people who become Christian, they, they have been in church for all that time, a lot, and said, you know, I thought I was a Christian, I just realized I wasn't. I just really found Christ. I heard it, and finally it sunk through. I've heard that many times. Keep preaching the word of God. When the Reformation happened, there was a rejection of Rome and all its processes to force people to stay into the church. Then the question was, how do you define a church? And they came up with a pretty simple definition. They said that wherever the word of God is purely taught in the sacraments, we would use the word um, ordinances, are practiced according to the Lord's institution, it's not to be doubted that there a church exists. And that was right. But they weren't satisfied with it. They had to do all this other stuff. And then they break off. So then it becomes apostasy. So we start another version. Same catechism, same O's, same process, becomes apostasy. So then we start another one, becomes apostasy. What they do not do is give up on the institutional church. They just think so. I was just reading Tim Keller's book called Center Church, and he thinks that we have to create a millennium on the earth, and he thinks the dark ages were an example of a good version of Christendom. Tim Keller says from 500 to 1500 A.D. is what Christendom looked like. It would be a good idea. And he wants more institutions, more Christendom, more people in the church that aren't born of God, because we want everybody to come in. And he's, uh, he heals to the Westminster Confession. So Reformed theology in its false ecclesiology has done massive damage to the definition of the church. And Eric and I have to say over and over again, they say, are you Calvinists? And we say, we do not believe in the Reformed eschatology, and we do not believe in Reformed Ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. We do believe that they many times have the doctrine of salvation correct by grace through faith. So there, so there you go. So let me see what I had here. I want to go back to this last verse here as, a, as we close. Back to Acts 2, 38 and 41. So what must we do we saw that Lydia's household, there's no evidence whatsoever that infants were baptized there. That's just a supposition read back into the text by the institutional church. Acts 2, 38 and 41. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. Who were baptized? Those who received his word. In that day, there were added 3,000 souls. And I mentioned 21 times, and I read all 21 of them today. Never is baptized explicitly applied to infants. It's consistently used in the context of conversion. So I conclude that infant baptism does not add people to the church and that forcing people at age 12 to swear to whatever you tell them to swear to, that doesn't add people to the church either. 
I was told I had to swear in front of the church at age 12 that I believed certain things, including the resurrection of Jesus, his death, and so on. But the pastor during the training class told me he didn't believe those things because I questioned it. So the pastor made me swear in front of people that I believed what I know he didn't believe. 12 years old. And I wasn't about to start problems for anybody. I love my parents. And so I said, okay, I did it. I got a little older. I headed to the golf course. What's the point of this? See, faith doesn't come by denominational catechizing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and for allowing us to look into Acts and see these things. Help us to be faithful and to teach your word and to understand the word of truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you upstairs.